Shalom, everyone. This is Zion Hebraic Congregation with me, Luke Tanner. This week's Shabbat message is by my dad, Warren, from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. Feel free to check out our website, zionhebraiccongregation.com. There you will find archived Shabbat messages as well as my dad's blog posts. And you can also subscribe to those blogs that he sends out weekly in the little subscribe box. And you will find links to our social media accounts such as Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, also feel free to subscribe to our Shabbat messages on your favorite uh, podcast provider platform, such as Apple Podcasts or Google Play or whatever. So, And uh, you can feel free to leave a review if you would like. Enjoy. Hey, mighty warriors arise, yeah. All right, let's turn, if you would please, this morning to 1 Corinthians. Made it out of Romans. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 this morning, these chapters. Um, and then try to pull these two chapters together based on what I see is, is kind of where Paul is wanting to take us in relation to the Corinthians, but also in relation to where we are today uh, in the midst of the world in which we live in, in the midst of church life, congregation life. Uh, I think you'll find it interesting. I do want to mention that um, I've been doing this podcast with my friend of many, many years, uh, who is the captain right now with the Salvation Army in Manchester. And he wanted to do a podcast with me where we just kind of, well, it, it, was, it, it was born out of during the summer, I'd go into his office and I just something I read in the Bible. And I, we just had these conversations that went on for an hour where we're just kind of talking over scriptures from an unformatted position and two guys together just bouncing stuff off the wall, see where any of it sticks. So he wanted, he came up with the idea of doing a podcast. It's called We Believe. And it's connected with the Salvation Army in Manchester. We've done three episodes and we're trying to recreate the same atmosphere that we had in his office now doing a podcast. So it's not preachy, it's, it's not anything. It's just two guys talking. This last one, we had the other captain with us. So it was the two captains from the Salvation Army and myself. And Mike wanted to work through, they're both called Mike, but my Mike wanted, uh, we're working through James. And it's really great stuff. So these podcasts are on, uh, he uses Anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R, but they're also up on Apple Podcasts too. So just a little plug for this. Yeah, I don't know what they're on. Yeah. So, so anyway, just, just a little commercial, but I think it's, it's been wonderful. It's been a blessing to me. All right. So like I said, we're going to read through first and second Corinthians and just a couple verses into chapter three. Then I'm going to go back. I'm going to give you my general outline. Uh, have basically kind of a couple with emphases, emphases, and then 
try to work through this as quickly as possible. I, I actually noted that I started a little before the hour, 15 minutes before the hour, so I'll keep track. All right, so let's read this. Um, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, 
that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. How be it? We speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world, uh, uh, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would have would not have crucified the Lord or glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man, but the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as wise uh, and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of are ye not carnal? And then he goes on from there. Now, I don't know about you, but the first thing I thought was a whole lot hasn't changed in church life in the last 2,000 years. There is still, I follow Nehemiah. I follow Brad. I follow MacArthur. I follow Stanley. And for some reason, after 2,000 years, we still struggle within our fellowships 
to be one. And where our fellowships should be a place that's a safe haven where we can all come together as one and leave all that other stuff outside the four walls or wherever we meet, it becomes a battleground, a battlefield, a place for everybody to defend whom or what they think is the best and the greatest. So I don't know, that was my overall thought I was struck with. It's like, ha, nothing has changed in the last 2000 years. You know, I said multiple times, you know, during those years from age 16 to 19 when I was doing all those drugs and the hippie movement, it, we really did take care of one another and there was a unity and a, a camaraderie. And I thought, man, once I get saved, you know, after I got saved, I thought this is going to be the best thing ever to be among God's people. Well, as we all know, until Jesus comes, until we're glorified, we're still housed in this flesh and we're still human. So even though Paul has to address these things, there's encouragement to realize there is an answer. There is victory in this in Christ. Now, I've broken up uh, primarily chapter one, and that's what we're going to look at, into a couple outlines. So this is for chapter one. I try to make them all in the same letters because that's how my mind thinks. So in verses one through three, I see a theme of family. He talks about our brother Sosthenes in verse one. He says both theirs and ours, verse two. He says God our father, our father in verse three. And then also in verse 11, he says my brethren. And as I was reading this, it seemed to me that Paul was trying to at least emphasize the fact that hey, because we're in Yeshua, because we're in Christ, we are family. This should be a, a nice family, healthy family environment. Now, we all know we all have families. We've grown up in families. There's not a perfect family. There's never been a perfect family, even on this earth, even in uh, Yeshua's family. You know, his, his brother saw who are you? And they all went and thought, tried to rescue him from himself because they thought he was going crazy. And so there's no perfect family. There just isn't. I really thought <laughs> when we got married and started having our own kids, because I grew up in an unsafe family, unsaved relative, unsaved environment, didn't know much of, of, of Christian family life other than the main family through which I was saved. I thought, we're going to have, with God's help, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he won't depart. We're going to have the perfect family. Well, I forgot we weren't perfect parents. And we gave birth to not perfect kids and nothing is perfect. But we have the families that we have and it's our responsibility before God to make them the best families they can be. And so it is in the congregation center. We're a family We're, we are. My mom always said, Tip, blood is thicker than water. That was her mindset. You know, we're blood, we're family. That's thicker than everybody else out there. We stick together. And I appreciate that. But I ended up saying to her, and she didn't really appreciate it too much because I kept being brought up. I said, yes, mom, but the blood of Jesus is thicker than any human blood or water. And I really believe that to this day. Those of us that are bought with the blood of Yeshua, we are to have a closer tie, unless it's with family that's saved, than any other tie because we've been birthed into this family by the blood of Yeshua and all that it cost him 
And if we trample upon that and mess up our relationships, gosh, this isn't good. And, and Paul is dealing with, so that's point one, family. And then uh, fellowship, verses four through nine, where it says, uh, verse nine, God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So it's a family in which we're supposed to have fellowship. But Paul has to deal with the third thing, and that is friction. And that's verses 10 through 17, where he talks about factions and, and it's factious people and it's friction. So we're a family. We're supposed to get together for fellowship. But what happens many times, it was happening with the Corinthians, it was just friction. And Paul walks into this and says, hey, what's going on here? And then foolishness, verses 18 through 29. He talks about how the, the, the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And I like how it says in, in chapter 2, verse 4, he said, Paul says, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You cannot pull off preaching in a demonstration of spirit and power unless God is really doing something in your life. However, the, you can pull off dynamic and charismatic and charisma and stuff by preaching with your own enticing words. You get what I'm saying? We can, we can have great messages, we can have great sermons, and we can present great environments, but there's a difference between man-made creation of all that and when the Spirit of God is really moving. And I don't know that we've seen really too much of the true movement of the Spirit of God. And when I say that, I mean like going back to the periods of revival, especially revival in New England with Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God, and, and God just brought revival because here was a man, he did not preach with enticing words, but he had the Spirit of God upon him. And things happen. So I'm preaching at myself and to myself as well. So this world's wisdom. And, and, and anyway, so and then the last thing is family part two. And that's verses 30 and 31 where it says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, whom of God is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. There's this idea, idea of he winds this family thing up of fullness we should be able to experience the full outpouring of the gifts and spirit of God within our local fellowship, where it's not divisive, but where it unites us as a family. All right, so that's outline number one. Outline number two, um, same chapter, three words. First, grace, verse three. I think, and this isn't original with me, years ago I heard Swindoll speaking on 1 Corinthians, and he was, he just, the way he said it is only he can say, he said, can you believe it? The first thing the Apostle Paul emphasizes in relation to the Corinthians who were abusing their gifts and abusing grace, he highlights right off the bat grace. It's all grace, and rather than shying away from grace because they were abusing it, and misusing it, he was bold enough and brave enough to trust God to say, listen, it was all of grace. That doesn't mean we can become libertines. It doesn't mean now we have license. Now we can just go do whatever the H-E double toothpicks we want. No, grace does not mean excess. Grace means a willingness to reign in for the glory of God, not barf out yourself, the flesh, 
all to the glory of man. And Paul is contrasting what is to the glory of God and what is to the glory of man. So that's grace and he emphasizes that. It's amazing, especially to the Corinthians. Second, <laughs> verses 12 through 13, he deals with what I'm calling groupies. We all know what groupies are. Every rock band has groupies. You know, people, girls that will do whatever to get close to them and they'll follow them. And then you just have the regular fans that are fanatics. Yeah, I'm probably one in some of the groups that I like. But it's this groupie mentality that he needs to combat. And, and you know, verses 12 and 13, he hits this. Now, uh, this I say that every one of you says, I'm a groupie. I'm a groupie after Paul. I'm a groupie after Apollos. I'm a groupie after Cephas. I'm a groupie after Christ. Of course, they'd be the most spiritual ones. And, you know, I wrote this in my blog, but this was my thought. They got saved and immediately they started down the path of stupid. And I wrote that in my blog. I, I'm, I am... I cannot understand what happens to us when we get saved. Rather than becoming the most wise people, we kind of devolve into stupidity and being stupid. What I mean by that is rather than following the injunctions of the word of God, we still choose to go our own way and do things our own way. And, 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 and I still maintain the reason we do that is because it's hard to get to this book every day and let it love on you, let it dissect you, let it beat on you, let it hug you. We have to get to the place where we are immersing ourselves in the Word of God. And I'm telling you here that if we don't, whoever's here, me, everybody, if we don't, we continue on our own path of stupid. And we have to stop this. We have to stop this. I put my blog where Jesus says that the children of this world are wiser than the children of light. That was not a compliment. What happens to us? They get saved out of incredible stuff only to become fleshly groupies. I don't know whose grandkid that is, but I'm not claiming them. <laughs> And then the last one is God. That's the third G in this. Um, I find this interesting. This, and this, I expanded on this thought, but it wasn't original with me. This is interesting. We have factions. We have fleshliness. 20 times God is mentioned in chapter 20. Sometimes think about doing these things. Because I read it, read it, read it, and it's like I didn't even catch it. 20 times God is mentioned. In chapter one, in chapter one, in, did I say two? Oh, I'm sorry. In chapter one of 1 Corinthians, God is mentioned 20 times, same chapter. In chapter one, Christ is mentioned 17 times. Jesus is mentioned 10 times. And you could throw him in there in verse five. In the first 10 verses, references are made to Christ 10 times in the first 10 verses and him, verse five, so you could say it 11 times. I think Paul's trying to get our attention. And then he's referred, God is referred to as father once. That is fascinating. Three times in the whole book, 
But in chapter one, he's mentioned God the Father. So God 20 times, Christ 17 times, Jesus 10 times, Father one time. That cannot be an accident. It just cannot be an accident. It's almost like he's trying to say, get your eyes off of everything and everybody else. Our focus is not to be on Apollos and Paul and Cephas, but on Christ, on Yeshua, the Messiah. We have a heavenly father. He set up this family. At the head of the family is our Savior, Messiah. What are you guys doing? You know, you have to be familiar with the rest of the book, but if you go through and read it, and then you get into 2 Corinthians, you, you understand and believe that the tone I'm presenting is, I don't know that he's even so much mad as exasperated and frustrated at what is happening. All right, so those are my outlines. Now, um, what's interesting is Paul highlights, I think, on two things in this chapter. One is you guys are not united. That's the first one. Number two, why are you being so stupid? That's the second one. The second one, why are you being so stupid? Because he highlights the word wisdom. The wisdom, not the wisdom of the world. The first one, there's three different words for this lack of cohesiveness amongst this congregation. And those three words are, and there are three different Greek words. In English, in the King James, it has, the first one is divisions. That's the word we get, uh, uh, schisms. It's the word schisma. So there's divisions. That's mentioned in verse 10. But the same word is also in chapter 11, verse 18, divisions. And it's also in chapter 12, verse 25, translated in King James as schism. So he's highlighting on the fact that you guys are fractured. We have to straighten this out. How are you fractured? You have, um, um, what's the word, skin, um, What's the Greek word I just said? Schisms. You have schisms. There's not supposed to be schisms. The second word is contention. That's a, and there's a different Greek word for that. Verse 11, contentious. It's also uh, translated strife in chapter 3, verse 3. It's also in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 20, to, to translated as debates. And, and Galatians 5, 20, it's, it's translated the same word, variance. So there's contention, strife, debates, variances. This is not good. If we were to um, um, do an evaluation of, of God's people, we'd be thinking, well, schisms, contentions that are manifesting itself in strife and debates and being at odds, various with one another. And then the third word is, again, another Greek word is divided. It means to be separated, cut into pieces, divided into parties, split into factions. So Paul is trying to say to all of us, and perhaps our Messianic movement that we believe God is rearing up in these last days, and I think he is, but as Scott said, this first manifestation ain't it. God is going to have to do more, and he will as the time gets closer. But Paul's trying to say to these Messianics, because they're Messianics, first century Messianics, Hebraic root people, come on, our focus is God the Father, Jesus, Jesus Christ, Yeshua, our Messiah. 
Why are you so split up? And it's so bad. It's so bad. There's divisions, uh, schisms. There's, there's contention, strife, debates, variances. And you're separated. This is not healthy. It's not healthy. All right. Now, the second word is wisdom. And, and I like this. You know, I'm not going to go through all of them, but I wrote them all down. Um, he refers to wisdom, not, not coming to them with wisdom of words. Although we are told that Apollos in Acts chapter 18, verse 24, was an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures. So it doesn't mean you have to butcher the king's language or butcher the Greek language or butcher whatever language is going to be preached. And it's not talking about that so much as relying upon your oratory to get the message across. However, if that oratory is Holy Spirit moved, breathed, inspired, I don't mean it like the scriptures, then that's fine because Apollos was an eloquent man, mighty in scripture. So I'm not saying we should know how to speak. I'm not saying it doesn't matter if we don't know how to speak. We should know how to speak. When I preach, I, I go over and I read over at least three times, lots of times more, the passage of scripture that I'm going to read. So I stumble over myself as little as possible so that I can try to pick up the feel, the intonation, the tone of it, at least as how I'm receiving it and put inflection into it so it'll live rather than just read this monotone thing and we're, I'm screwing it all up because, oh, I didn't really read it enough and I'm bumbling and jumbling. The fellow who was my assistant pastor uh, in, in my other church, that's what he used to do. I said, listen, no more of this. You need to read all the scripture that you are going to be presenting. You need to read it silently and you need to read it out loud before you start coming back to preach because we cannot be stumbling over the scriptures like this. So he took it to heart. It was a great relationship. He went out into the camper they had. He told me, he said, I go out there and I read it out loud to the camper. You know, so I'm not saying... Let's be, I'm not saying be dumb idiots and it doesn't matter. I'm just saying, what are we relying upon? And so interesting, he, this word wisdom is used so many times. I'm just going to give you the times. Chapter 1, verse 17, 19, 20, 21, 22, 24, verse 30. That's a ton of times. In, uh, uh, um, in chapter 2, it's mentioned 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 times. In chapter 3, uh, once, and in chapter 12, verse 8, at least once, if I'm doing this right. Now, Paul, in chapter 1, verse 20, says, uh, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And he built on that. So the question that came to my mind is, and this is Christianity or Messianic, so if, if God hath made foolish the wisdom of this world, so why do we keep looking to the world to use their business model to build the church, the ecclesia, the body of Messiah? We, we hire these outside consultants. We, we, we buy these programs that these unsaved, successful business people do. We incorporate the business model into our churches and look, they're doing very well. We, we know how to promote. We know how to... Um, uh, uh, advertise. We know how to present it so it will look aesthetically pleasing. Anything wrong with that? I don't know. However, I'm telling you, it's a whole lot harder to be like the Apostle Paul 
to go into this place where he says, I did read it, right? Um, he, 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 in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul blows apart the business model that we're using in our Messianic movements and in our churches because he says, when I came to you, I didn't come with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. So how did he show up? I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. Why? It's harder to be able to preach, though you present yourself this way, in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in wisdom, but in the power of God. And if you continue reading, it's almost like a switch gets flipped here. And that, that, that guy that we're wondering who he is, where he goes, and he just tears himself apart. You can tell, humanly speaking, a switch got flipped. And all of a sudden, this guy that they saw as weak and didn't have good oratory like Apollos, you read the rest of this and all of it, but you read the rest of it, you know it's Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost infused. Something happens. It just, as I was reading it through it the last time, it's like, goosh, what just happened here? This guy is saying this incredibly, potently powerful stuff. And he just said, I'm not generating it myself. And he's showing them through his writings what a true demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God is like. And I long for it in my own life. And I long for it now. All right, so what I wanted to focus on, and I'm a half an hour into this, I'm going to try to end quickly. What I started out with was the theme of the preaching of the cross. And I'll, I'll just go through this quickly. The preaching of the cross. He mentions it in chapter 1, verse 17. Uh, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be made effect, uh, unef uh, should, whatever, of none effect. Verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved is the power of God. Verse 23. For we preach Christ crucified. And it's again the idea of the cross. Uh, unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness. So Paul preached the cross. The early church preached a lot on the resurrection, if you go into Acts. So you have both sides. The cross was preached as death. Also, the other side of the gospel was his resurrection. Now, you may know differently than I. Is I'm kind of limited into whom and what I listen to on purpose. But I started thinking back. When's the last time you've heard really a message that focuses on the cross, the stake upon which he died for our sins. If you really take the time to think about it, and, and the Gospels don't really give you time to think about it because it doesn't highlight any of this. But this was a bloody, horrible, gruesome, embarrassing, shameful way to die. I mean, you're up there with the criminals and the murderers and the, however and whatever reason they were being crucified. Yeshua is crucified with them. And, and we don't get the details, but when he's scourged and a throne of crowns put upon him and his beard ripped out and they spit in his face and then after the blood's had a chance to coagulate on his back, they rip that mock royal garment off and they 
send him forward to carry probably the cross beam that he's so worn out. At this point, he has no strength and somebody comes along and carries it for him. And then he's nailed and stakes are driven and then they raise it up and drop it into the ground and all his bones sh just shatter and shudder. And he's gasping now for breath. That's the purpose of this type of thing. He died by asphyxiation. If you don't die from the stab and the beatings and everything else. <sighs> that doesn't sell. And on top of that, if you put together what Yeshua said, if you're going to come after me, deny yourself daily, take up your cross and come follow me. You are signing up for everything I am going to model for you. Who wants to be first? But we have shifted the emphasis from that to almost everything. Come to church and be comfortable. Live a comfortable life. Only in America, as Mary Lee pointed out. But I think that's probably true. Probably Live a comfortable life. Have everything you want. Don't suffer. Don't deprive yourself. Don't do without Jesus' blessing, look at we have multi-millions upon millions of dollars worth of buildings in one complex, complex of pastors making well over 200000 and maybe even more yearly. And look at the cars he has in the house and the clothes are tailored fit. Come to Jesus. That's not preaching the cross. That doesn't sell. That's not popular in America. Gosh, I'm going to make myself cry. What has happened to me, us? <sighs> I wonder if the potency of our preaching hasn't been imperceptibly so dumbed down to fit into the atmosphere of political and spiritual correctness we find ourselves in, in our country. I actually did write that merrily. To truly preach the cross of Christ hits at the heart of the gospel message. So, what does the cross say? And this is where I'll just read it. The cross says Christ was actually here amongst us. These are just my own thoughts. I just started, so what does preaching the cross look like? What does it mean? And I don't know why these thoughts came. First one, the cross says he was here. He was here. He lived. He walked amongst us. And his history is still ongoing for 2,000 years. He changed the face of the whole globe. He was actually amongst us. How? He was God in the flesh, deity. He was the Torah in the flesh, the inspired word of God walking amongst us. He was the Lamb of God in the flesh. What's that mean? The need of a human divine sacrifice on account that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We don't want to preach about the Lamb of God because to preach about the Lamb of God, you're telling your congregation you're a mess. You're in sin. If you're not saved, you are in sin and it costs the cross. The last thing under this point, the cross says that the temple of God in the flesh 
was amongst us. <laughs> Think about that. The temple of God made flesh, the Torah, walks in amongst that temple. No wonder, forgive my language, he's pissed off when he sees everything that's going on. He makes his whip and he goes in there and he just looks like a raving maniac. Why? Because the religious system they had turned it in was a sham. Much like ours. Number two, the cross says that Christ actually died a horrible, gruesome death to show us the extent of our sinfulness and the extent of his love for us. Paul says, barely would somebody, a friend die for somebody else. I forget how it goes. It should come to my mind right now. But very few people will die for somebody they love. But Christ died for us and, he, and, and we didn't love him at all. Third, the, Christ, the cross says Christ actually arose. Not only did he die, but he arose. And there were witnesses. And, and our life is to be a testimony to that resurrection because he lives within us. We are to be huh, shameful on me and us. We're, we're supposed to be the walking embodiment of Yeshua on this earth as best we can in our humanity. And he understands that, but that's what, when he says, let your light shine, it's not talking about this little light of mine, I'll let it shine. The light that's in us, him. And to, to be salt on the earth, it doesn't just mean, you know, say hard, harsh things and point out, yes, but it's him living his life through us. If, if his light and his intensity and his power radiates through us, that's why in my blog I write about Spurgeon and Moody and George Patton, and uh, on and on. These guys had the power of God. And I, I do think, we're not seeing that. I do think that was the last movement in Britain and in, in, in America and maybe perhaps around the world because the times were in and down. That was really that outpouring, I think, of this last great missionary movement and the last era of the preachers that really had a power with God. All right, then let's see. Uh, so he actually, I don't know if I gave the third one. Yeah, the cross says he actually arose. He's alive. <laughs> Here's the kicker. And if he's alive, Houston, we have a problem. Because the problem is, if he's alive, that's a problem for those who are committed to a life of denial. Because that's what sin is. Really, it's a life of denial. That he came, that he, that he lived, that he died, that he rose. And what's it a denial of? A denial of the need to fix a problem, which is sin. If Jesus Christ, if we don't preach the cross, people are confronted with the fact that they have a sin problem. <laughs> the cross, this stone at a third point. So it's a denial, denial of a need to fix a problem, sin. It's a denial of a better life in this world. And that's the thing that, you know, so we tiptoe around lost people, unsafe family members. And rather than doing the most loving thing is to, with the right spirit, and that's usually our problem, wrong spirit, to say, listen, here's the truth. Those unsafe, I'm guilty, those unsafe family members, those close friends, we, because of our own fear, keep our mouth shut. And I've done it. And in doing so, we're denying them. This hit me in our, our visit out, out west. We're denying these people an actual relationship with Christ. 
because we're too afraid of what we have to say, which is a truth, the light and the salt might cause family disharmony. It has to. Why are we scared of that? Jesus said, if you follow me, you might lose wife, husband, brother, sister, family, houses, lands. We're still trying to cling on to all that. And, and we think, oh, well, that, that what Jesus said is really not for us. It is. Den so it's a denial of a better life in this world. It's a denial of a coming future judgment. And it's a denial that there is a God period. You don't want to preach the cross. We don't preach the cross. It gives the deniers opportunity to deny sin, deny uh, uh, blah, 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 um, a better life. In this world, it, it's the opportunity to deny a coming judgment. If, if Christ never came, if we don't preach the cross, how are they going to know about judgment? Because he, he says he's going to judge. I don't know, I'm, OK, I'm beating this to death. All right. So that was my three points. So let me conclude with this. So not doing too bad. I'm trying to keep it under 45 minutes. So here's the thing about the preaching of the cross. And we're not going to turn. I'll give it to you and then I'll pray. We're told in 1 Corinthians 1, 17, 18, that the preaching of the cross is the power of God. I don't understand what that means. But if we don't preach the cross, we're shutting down an opportunity for the power of God. We're told in Galatians 5, 11, and here's part of the reasons why we don't want to preach the cross. It's offensive. It's offensive. Galatians 5, 11. Galatians 6, 12, the preaching of the cross brings on persecution. Philippians 3, 18, Paul talks about those who are enemies of the cross. But we're also told, in spite of all of that, in Colossians 1, 20, that there's the only place to find true peace is through the blood of the cross. Colossians 1, 20. Now, Paul highlights the cross, the preaching of the cross, not preaching with man's wisdom, trying to break down factions and fractions and all this other stuff because we're a family that is supposed to be relying upon the power of God, not our own power, to do and bring about life-changing effects in the life of those who got saved so that we go on to become more like Yeshua, but also so others will see what we have and be drawn and, we, and, and, and receive Yeshua. But if we're going to skirt from the preaching of the cross, we're not preaching the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, for just really ringing my bell. I mean, in a good sense, I, I loved going through these chapters like never before. I mean, you know, this is the first time going through these chapters and into chapter three that it just seemed to just kind of like be like the, um, the blossom, meaning blossom onion thing. It just kind of just opened up. And I don't have the last word on any of this, but I know that there was a beginning of me and so much stuff. And I ask that it'll be true for all of us. Father, when we are with family, friends, unsaved workers, to not shy away from preaching the gospel, which is the cross, which means everything I said. He, he was actually here. He actually died. He actually walked amongst us. He arose. And if he's alive now, then we have a problem. And that problem is sin. Because the only reason he came is not to make us feel good and make everything better. He came to die for our sins. 
So to preach the cross has to start with the message of sin, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Even while we were yet enemies, Paul tells us, he died for us. Father, all this that has gone before us, these great men that walked before us in the flesh, these human people like Spurgeon and Moody and all these, and the missionaries, Hudson Taylor, and those that died like Jim Elliott, giving his life to the Indians. Oh, Father. And then to go back to just the biblical examples, we've come so far. But I do believe in this last time that you're working to raise up true, I shouldn't say true, but to raise, to, to pull together what is already in us, to become the men and women of God that you want us to be. The husband, the wife, the brother, the sister, the person that sits in the pew, I believe you're trying to pull it all together and to unite us into conformity with the one person that matters, Yeshua. Not us, but Him. All for His glory. Amen. Hey, mighty warriors around.